Hello and welcome to Humans in Extremes. My name is Heather Massey and in this podcast we'll be chatting to people who've worked and lived in extreme or challenging environments. Our guest today is Matt Wilkes. He's an anaesthetist by day, but also an altitude medic, paragliding pilot and a PhD student. Hi Matt, welcome to the podcast. Hi Heather, thank you for having me. Now, Matt, you've got quite an arrangement of jobs going on here. Can I just ask you to talk me through what you do in terms of your day job? Sure. So um, I do a lot of things not very well. Uh, my day job is as an anaesthetics and critical care doctor at a hospital in Edinburgh. So that's making people sleepy for operations and when people end up in intensive care, looking after them there. But I managed to mix that in with a few other more fun and more exotic things. It sounds, yeah, it sounds like it. A bit of wilderness medicine, a bit of uh, intensive care work as well. What inspired you to, to become a doctor and also to go into uh, anaesthetics? In terms of what inspired me to become a doctor, um, that's actually quite a hard one to answer. I think what, I can tell you what inspired me to get into wilderness medicine, though, and that was when... Uh, when I was a second year medical student, there was the opportunity to go to Bolivia to be a guinea pig on a high altitude study. And what I didn't realise was that what they were actually studying was the effects of Viagra on pulmonary hypertension. So Viagra, in theory, is the perfect altitude medicine drug because it relaxes the smooth muscles of the lungs and should prevent you getting high altitude pulmonary edema. So about 20 of us all set off, we flew to La Paz, we went in a bus, we got wheaked up to 5,300 metres, and we spent the next 10 days wandering around, vomiting, <laughs> with terrible headaches, in the world's least blinded, double-blinded controlled trial. And not only was it an absolute hoot, um, but uh, it was really, really interesting, because I realised that you could potentially make a living as a doctor, at least partly, in these most fabulous places, looking at the most interesting questions. And one of the things that really struck me even at that age was how some people were fine with the altitude, me included, and some people were a disaster. And it was really that that kind of got me hooked on this extreme environment stuff. Wow, that's that's quite a story. You've obviously been back to altitude. Yeah, so I went to do my, uh, actually went back to the same laboratory in Bolivia to do my master's degree, which was looking at optic nerve sheath diameter and its relationship to intracranial pressure altitude. And then I've also done quite a lot of clinical work. So I was a doctor on expeditions. So I was lucky to be the doctor for the largest expedition ever to camp on the summit of Kilimanjaro. And also I've worked for three months in Nepal looking after porters and lowlanders who were coming up to the Kumbu. Wow, that's quite that's quite a mix of, of jobs. Are there any other environments that you've not been to that you would like to go to? I can definitely say the ones I don't want to go to. So I'm absolutely terrified of small spaces, so cavings out. Uh, hate jungles, because I hate creepy crawlies. Um, and having recently been to a seminar about ocean medicine, of which Mike Tipton was involved, not into that either. <laughs> that looks absolutely terrifying. But what I'm really passionate about is the mountains, cold weather and flight. Fabulous. So hopefully some more mountain medicine coming your way soon. I would hope so. Excellent. And I just want to pull out a point there that you mentioned that you found that some people were really affected by altitude and others weren't. Uh, can you tell me... What, what you meant by by that, what how they were affected. Sure, absolutely. I mean, when we first went into 
the lab in Bolivia, we were on a an altitude profile, so a rate of ascent designed to induce sickness. So everyone was expected to be unwell. However, some people were lying around, vomiting, crippling headaches. Others, myself included, had quite a lot of energy. And we were able to uh, kind of help move into the lab, help set things up. So it wasn't just a kind of someone has one biological marker different to another. It was really functional impairment. Some people just couldn't do the stuff they needed to do up there. And generally speaking, actually, it was the kind of big, strong, fit alpha males, of which I'm not one, who were most crippled by altitude. So I thought, oh, this is brilliant. This is going to make up me being terrible at football. <laughs> so, so, oh, maybe there's maybe I've got a chance here in the mountains. No, a football match in the mountains, maybe? I'd still trip over my own feet. Oh, right, OK. <laughs> so you mentioned that it was a big alpha males you thought that were having uh, more problems at altitude. Are there any other groups that are like, more likely to have problems at altitude? Well, one of the really fascinating things is that we're still not able to predict very well who's going to do well and who's going to do poorly. There are certain... There are some things like, for example, a previous history of altitude illness, obesity that will make you more likely to get unwell. But behaviour plays a huge part as much as physiology. So what I think tends to happen with the alpha males, and certainly I discover this when I'm on expedition, is that they will race up to the camp where we're going to spend the night, spend quite a lot of time, you know, generally sort of squatting and lunging and impressing us all with their virility. And then actually about six hours later, the hypoxia that they've been suffering catches up with them. Generally speaking, the people who do best at altitude are fit and healthy middle-aged women who take their time, are sensible about stuff. Um, and also there are some kind of theories that to do with space in their brain and their ability to drain blood from their brain that explains why perhaps old people might do a little better than young ones. That, that's absolutely amazing. Now, you said you'd also spent a bit of time at altitude in a clinic. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, and this was a... This is one of the most interesting jobs that I've done, actually. So as many of you will know, the whole of Himalayan climbing and mountaineering is based on the hard work of porters and Sherpas. So these are the people who carry up everything to do from the food that you're going to eat on expedition to, in some places, the building materials that make huts. Now, back in the day, the people who were doing this were Sherpas. So they were people who had genetic adaptations to perform well at altitude. However, many of the Sherpa group are now quite well off. And the people who are carrying these heavy loads are actually lowlanders. So they're people from the hill communities of Nepal. So typically the people called the Rai who live about 2000 meters or thereabouts. And it means that they have no more altitude adaptations than you or I. So you can get some young guy who's often they're on their school holidays and they know they can make quite a lot of money by carrying oh, the most we ever saw was 70 kilos, but which is insane. But on average, 30 to 40 kilos of stuff, which might be the beer that you're drinking for two weeks to Everest Base Camp or to the various other kind of resorts around the Everest region. And these guys get sick because they're no more adapted to it than you or I. And for a while, there was quite a number dying every year. So a few years ago, a Kiwi mountaineer called Jim Duff and a group of British mountaineers established a clinic 
which actually then became two clinics at places called Machermo and Gokyo, which are 4,400 and 4,700 metres in Nepal. And through the work of these clinics, there have been no more preventable porter deaths. So we went to staff the clinic uh, and it was fab. It's my wife and I and two other doctors who we know very well. So your wife's also a doctor as well? Oh, a much better one than me. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so she's a, a GP who also does lots of expeditionary and adventure stuff. So she's currently cycling around Goa in India. Oh, wow. If you've got one piece of advice to give to a young person who wanted to go into medicine or uh, wilderness medicine, what would that be? So for wilderness medicine in particular, your wilderness skills are just as important as your medical knowledge and ability. So what I always suggest to people is that they use their time either before medical school or in the long holidays at medical school to work on their expeditionary skills and their outdoorsmanship, because when you're on these trips, you don't want to be a liability. You have to be as good as the clients or better at what you do. And then once you've qualified as a doctor, spend a little bit of time in emergency medicine so you can deal with some of the kind of day-to-day -day immediate stuff and then start going on expeditions, but really focus on the non-medical stuff until you're qualified. So when you talk about your wilderness skills, it's knowing about the environment as well as the ability to cope with the conditions presented in front of you. Precisely, and everyone's drawn to a different aspect of things. So while I hate the jungle, uh, my friend James Moore, who I teach with a lot, loves it. There's no finer place for him. So if you know of the environment that interests you, spend time there, get to learn, all the skills that you need to be better than the clients you're going to be taking on trips. That can be everything from navigation to logistics, making sure you've not forgotten something. It's as simple as that. That sounds like really sound advice. Now, now moving on, again, based at altitude, you're also a paragliding pilot. Can you tell me what paragliding is, firstly, and how you got into it? Paragliding is a form of free flight. So it's a way of covering distance in the air launched from your feet without power. So it started in the 70s and it's called where people are kind of suspended under what looks like a parachute. And it used to be mountaineers who'd use it to climb up high and then get down really quickly. But as technology's improved, we can use the wind and the thermals to fly a really long distance. So the world record was just smashed about two weeks ago and it's now 588 kilometers in a single 11 hour flight. Now, if you think about the Wright brothers who were able to fly 80 feet 100 years ago, it's amazing what we can do under it was essentially a, a Sainsbury's bag with lines. That's pretty epic. Was it 588 kilometres. 88 kilometres in a single flight. A single flight. So how did you get involved with paragliding then? So I've always loved outdoor sports um, since I moved up to Scotland for university. I used to be very, very into kayaking. And then I did a tandem paraglide in the Alps and just completely fell in love with it. It took me a couple of years to get my to get money together to get my licence. But once I'd done that, there was no stopping me and my mum's despaired ever since. <laughs> so how, if people want to get involved with paragliding, how do they go about it? What training do they need? So to, the best thing to do is to go and do a tandem paraglide. And if you love it, you know it's going to be worth spending the money to keep going. At that point, you have to do your elementary licence, uh, what's called your club pilot licence. And you can do that at a school in the UK or overseas. It's often better to do it in the Alps, somewhere we have consistent weather so you can get a really good run at it. If you have great conditions and a little bit of natural talent, it'll take you a couple of weeks. And after that, you'll be able to fly under supervision. It's a, 
it's a very accessible form of aviation. So how how does the environment affect you as a paragliding pilot? Because um, paragliders are open cockpit aircrafts, because you're suspended in a harness, the full range of elements kind of play their part in your flight. So as a pilot, the thing that you really notice is cold. There's uh, You're travelling at between 35 and 40 kilometres an hour usually through the air so that's a huge amount of convection on your body taking heat away and we spend quite a lot of time trying to insulate ourselves against that as we climb higher hypoxia can become a factor and as you make sort of more radical maneuvers things like g-forces acceleration forces can come into play and then there's all the other stuff wind noise uv and a little bit of fear it's an extreme sport. So how do you minimise the risk of any uh, accidents or injuries? That's something that we're really working on. And that's something that part of that my PhD is really geared towards. I think, like anything, the kit is very rarely the problem. The problem is us as pilots. Um, the equipment very rarely breaks. It's the decisions we make that cause problems. So we can improve decision making partly through training and partly through changing the culture in which we fly. The bit that I've been looking at through the PhD is whether any of the environmental factors I've just mentioned might influence our decision making or might uh, at least be, if we were to protect ourselves against those, perhaps we'll make better decisions or in an emergency react in a more appropriate way. Fantastic. So can you just elaborate a bit more on, on what you're actually doing for your PhD? Sure. So. My PhD started because as an anaesthetist, I spend my professional life making sure oxygen gets from the outside world to the parts of your body that need it most. And so when I looked at paragliding, I just initially wondered if we might be hypoxic and that might be a problem. The other thing I noticed is that when I was flying, I was landing after four or five hours absolutely exhausted, even though it didn't feel like I was exercising. So I kind of wondered if when I was hypoxic or, or if it was maybe just a bit like driving a car where you go for a really long journey, you're actually exercising that much, but you'll be knackered at the end. So we started out in the first study looking at the effects of the effect of the environment on our physiology. So we did in-flight CPET testing. Um, so that is uh, so cardiopulmonary exercise testing. So looking at uh, how much oxygen the activity of flying consumes, and the answer is not very much. So it's probably a bit like driving a car. But what we did notice is that when you do emergency manoeuvres or acrobatics, the amount you use triples. So that was interesting. Um, but then, as we realised that perhaps the pure exercise wasn't the problem, the next step was to start to look at whether the environment affected our cognition. So in the second bit, we made an environmental simulator that did, it was essentially a giant fridge with a fan <laughs> that made people hypoxic and took them on a virtual flight. And we looked at different measures of their cognitive abilities. And again, people actually did okay. So almost a virtual reality setup. Kind of. We tried pure virtual reality initially, but we all vomited in 10 minutes. So what we realised through that, and 
one of the big learning things from my PhD is that you have to focus on what the question actually is. And our question was really, what's the effect of the environment on the pilot? So we ended up looking purely at those environmental factors of cold hypoxia and uh, wind convective cooling. So how have you gone on since those initial studies to progress the PhD? So since those first two studies, in the second study, we found that cognition, again, probably wasn't affected so grossly that we'd think this is a major source of error for pilots. So then I started to look at how we performed in relationship to our equipment, because when a paraglider becomes unflyable through some form of emergency, we have a reserve parachute. But actually, these emergencies occur rarely, and people don't throw them very much. They don't throw them when they need to, and they definitely don't practice throwing them. So in the third study of my PhD, we had a zipline. We sent 55 paraglider pilots down the zipline and got them to chuck their reserve parachute. And the important thing for me is that these were ordinary pilots like me. They weren't sky gods or test pilots who do this all the time. And in doing that, we found that the way people respond when they go down a zipline, and we stressed them out a little bit before they went down, doesn't really conform to what the harness manufacturers wanted them to do to use their kit properly. We discovered that people pull in a different direction to the way the harnesses want you to, that they look for the handle in places where the handle isn't. So what we kind of hope is that through feeding back what we've learned, we can change design. So when people are under stress at a potentially life-threatening moment in their flying career, their equipment will work with them, not against them. Okay, so the the PhD started to focus more on improving the safety of paraglider pilot. So where do you see this fitting in in the world of paragliding? So when we did our last study, um, we made a video about it, which we put on YouTube, that was accessible to anyone who flew. And we were quite... We took pains to make sure that actually... We didn't just do a two-minute summary. We explained in some detail why we conducted the experiment the way we did. And I was a bit worried that that wouldn't have much traction. But actually, even though it was quite a long video, people really seemed to appreciate the fact that we explained our methodology and take and took the work more seriously as a result. So uh, of the 10 manufacturers that make harnesses, we've had really positive responses from the majority of them. And they're going to try and integrate some of our suggestions into future designs. So... If I was to see that on a launch of someone with a harness that was made safer because of the work that we've done, that would just be a wonderful thing. And that's certainly a great way to document your PhD is the fact that you've had some changes and improvements in safety of the sport that you love doing uh, as a consequence. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely brilliant. (laughs) Matt, thank you very much for your time. Just one final question. If there is one thing you'd like to tell potential new paragliders what would that one thing be i think what i've learned through this process is just how fallible we are as humans and as pilots and so i think i would like new paraglider pilots to really understand the ways in which they can make themselves safer and that really means understanding their vulnerabilities so whether that's the cold whether that's the fact that they are scared on launch and that they need a checklist to make sure they don't forget stuff i want people to think really about how what they're about to do this miraculous act of flight is going to affect their bodies and take steps to make themselves safer thank you very much for your time matt thank you 
Thank you for joining us today. I hope you can join us again for the next episode of Humans in Extremes. This episode was created, presented and produced by Dr. Heather Massey with production assistance from Tom Langston. The music used in this episode was District 4 by Kevin McLeod. All copyright information can be found in the show notes. <laughs>